Welcome to Asian Oscar Bait, a podcast dedicated to encouraging diversity in cinema. Every week, we're going to tell you the story of a real-life Asian from history and pitch it as a film. But before we get to the storytelling, let's take a moment to talk about Asians in the media. Fun fact, it's Oscar season. The nominations for the 89th Academy Awards were announced on January 24th. Among the nominees are some Asian artists, including Tom Cross for Best Film Editing for La La Land, Toshio Suzuki for Best Animated Film for The Red Turtle, uh, and Joanna Nadagsagara for Best Documentary Short Subject for The White Helmets. Eileen Lee was nominated for Best Sound Mixing and Best Sound Editing for La La Land, and is, in fact, the first Asian person to be nominated in the Sound Editing category. Uh, Dev Patel was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in Lion. He's the third Indian acting nominee ever. And on that note, there have only been 12 Asians ever nominated in the acting categories, with only three winners of those 12 nominees. Let's clarify that that number actually varies depending on what countries you consider to be Asian. I know Iran, for example, gets mixed reception about whether it's Middle Eastern, Asian, or both. So... On the note of Iran, there's also Asghar Farhadi, who directed the best foreign language film nominee, The Salesman, and more on him in a bit. But how do you feel, Matthew? I don't think anyone really expected much higher numbers for Asians um, in terms of nominees, but you watch way more films than anyone else I know, so are there any Asian actors or directors or editors who you think should have been nominated but weren't? Um, I mean, I think along those lines of Asian artists who should have been nominated I feel like a lot of those at least for me are from films that Oscar voters were never going to look at in the first place like um, Spa Night that independent film that Andrew Ahn directed that's just like this micro budget indie film about a Korean young man's coming sexual coming of age that mm-hmm. you know I mean I don't think I like 75% of the academy that's generous like <laughs> 85 99% of the academy has probably never heard of this movie even though they absolutely should have watched it um but also yeah like Apichat Pong's um Cemetery of Splendor um Karen Kusama's Invitation I mean yeah these films were definitely criti- critically acclaimed when they came out earlier than you know, like Oscar voters usually tend to look for films, mm-hmm. which is, you know, anytime before September, unless there's like an auteur behind it. But yeah, I don't know. It's, I think there are obviously more Asian artists that could have been nominated, but they just tend to be from films that no one's giving any attention to beyond critics um, or art house audiences. Yeah, um, I always wonder when... I mean, this was another pretty good year for Asian horror film. I know um, Train to Busan was Mm -hmm. like a big Korean zombie action flick. And um, also The Wailing, which we mentioned, Mm -hmm. I think, in the last episode. And um, yeah, I really... It's really interesting. The foreign language category makes it really hard for films that aren't just like straight-out dramas, I guess, to get nominated at the Oscars. Yeah, I mean... They tend to be, I feel like the foreign film category is usually what, like, what was the most acclaimed film from Cannes, and that usually doesn't tend to be, although actually, think now going back to Cannes, um, I'm pretty upset. I told, this totally slipped my mind, but I'm actually really upset about The Handmaiden missing oh out. Oh my god! I the Handmaiden okay. missing out in, like, costume design and production design, which it, you know, should not only have been nominated for, but in a ideal world would have One. won like walked away with that oh yeah trophy. that was such a good film i mean whatever i know because i've you know i i think it's 
I understand the critiques of The Handmaid and of people who just like don't think it's like just bonkers for bonkers sake but I think it's hard to argue that it's not like just pure cinema candy for people like it's, 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 it's a beautiful beautifully and you can't made. deny that yeah mm. and, and uh, you know like you know it's why isn't a movie like this being trumpeted for these technical categories of which it's you know of which it's craftsmanship is an inarguable I hope I mean I hope in in 10 years we're talking more about Handmaid, Handmaid and then La La Land but whatever <laughs> okay so um going back to Asghar Farhadi um in light of Donald Trump's um Muslim ban um Farhadi is not allowed to come into America to be a part of the Oscars. I think some people said he could apply for a special waiver, but I don't think he's going to bother. No, he's not. And before that was announced, um, one of the actresses in his film who was invited to come uh, also boycotted the yeah, Oscars. Tarana Aladusti, mm-hmm. um, who's incredible in The Salesman. I mean, The Salesman is an amazing film, um, and it's, I think in any other year it would probably be like a strong contender for best foreign language film i now think it's probably there's no like possible way it's going to lose that award this year in light of what's happened with farhadi i mean i interviewed farhadi um in november actually a week after the election and i was fortunate enough to get to talk to him about why i love the film and like just his career overall um and i think like the common thread that really that he feels unites his films and which I've, you know, has, has been talked about before is that he's an incredibly empathetic storyteller and there's a lot of, so many of his plot lines um, pivot around characters who do sort of terrible things or else like sort of like morally gray things. Um, but he doesn't really judge his characters and he doesn't judge their circumstances. He truly sees all characters, um, all of his characters as humanity which I think is incredibly rare. And so it's just, it feels, I think there's something especially heartbreaking about Farhadi being banned just because this is truly a filmmaker who champions like humanism in all of his work. So you think that he's got like a pre, it's like almost unlock to win Best Foreign Language? I think, I mean, I think I, I I feel like I'm at a point right now where I would be shocked if it missed out. Just be, mm-hmm. even if even if it was a terrible movie, I think there would be. Which I mean, for Hadi would never make a terrible movie. But even, <laughs> if, even if it was, you know, a lesser movie than it was, I think just the the global controversy surrounding him and now surrounding the film. I mean, the film is actually. Um, I saw it yesterday at a Regal theater, oh. which is crazy that it's playing there. Like I saw it in a like a hundred seat theater um, on a humongous fucking screen, which I never thought I would see an Oscar Farhadi film displayed on. Um, and so I think that sort of speaks to like the amount of attention that the film is getting now, but also that you know people are hearing about this director who's been banned, and they're hearing about this film that. They should be seeing, and I think the distribute the, the distribution company Cohen Media Group um, is doing a pretty fantastic job of promoting it, of promoting and like, it, and like ensuring yeah. that people have a way to see it beyond the art houses that they might not know about. I guess I just like imagine it winning, and I do feel like some trepidation about who's going to collect the award on the pers- on the Oscars behalf and uh, what they're going to say. Yeah, I mean, I think we can sort of talk about now, like. 
the I, trend of like uh, political speeches at award ceremonies. Yeah. yeah, I think that. Because I know right when the Farhadi news broke that he was probably not going to be able to attend the ceremony, a lot of people just immediately went, like, cancel the Oscars. Like, we should mm-hmm. not have a ceremony this year. And I understand that viewpoint. I think it's valid. But it also, it doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense to me. Because it sort of just becomes a victory for Trump that in that way. Like, it's, you know, it's like a willful silencing. Where I mean, I watched the SAG Awards two Sundays ago. And I would say, like, 90% of those speeches had a political undertone to them, whether explicit or, um, you know, implicit. I guess the trend kind of started this particular awards season with uh, Meryl Streep at the Golden Globes. Was it the Golden Globes? Yeah, it was the Golden Globes. And, um, you know, she made that speech about how we need to be more inclusive, weirdly putting down mixed martial arts. I'm not sure how I feel about... I feel like there's always a sense of... um, I think I always like worry about what these speeches are going to contain when someone goes up to talk, and it makes me so anxious. I, I watched a bunch of the SAG Awards ones. I definitely cried during the Hidden Figures one. Oh, yeah, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful Marshall Ali. Marshall, yeah. Oh, my God. But that's also like, yeah. why would you... He's going to invest Supporting Actor this year. There's no other way that's... There's no other con- nominee that has coming within a spinning distance of copying that award from mm-hmm. him. Um, and his speech at the SAG Awards was beautiful and like definitely the highlight of the night for me. Um, but, it, you know, it was because he like directly identified as a Muslim and just, you know, spoke beautifully about how, you know, his personal relation to the religion and how it caused some friction with his mother, but like they overcame it. And, you know, like, why wouldn't you want to hear that, like, another... I mean, I'm sure he's going to say something as equally moving and vital in his Oscar acceptance speech. So why wouldn't you want to hear that? I mean, I think... And I think a lot of... I think a lot of winners will probably follow suit. I mean, I I hope so. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the thing that grates on me the most about those speeches, um, when they're not... When they're done, you know, primarily by people who aren't really affected by any of Trump's, like, uh, policies or aren't really affected by discrimination in the country, is that a lot of them sort of take the award shows as a time to sort of talk the talk, but rarely do they ever walk the walk, you know? And that is something that's really frustrating. I mean, it is easy to sort of just espouse these, like, political beliefs from a podium mm-hmm. and then not do anything about it. But I do think, I don't know, I, I, I think it is valuable to use your platform to at least get these ideas and these sentiments out into a broader like broader public. I mean, everyone is going to be watching the Oscars um, for whatever reason. They feel like watching it just because it is the Oscars. But like, you know, <laughs> it's stuff we need to hear at a time like this. So what do you think the Oscars should be doing? If you could... I don't know, make a mandatory addition to the Oscar ceremony itinerary, what would it be? That's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I guess I would like to make it mandatory that everyone has to say something anti-Trump in this speech. (laughs) Or I don't know, if they could all say, like, I stand with Oscar. Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, I think that would be, you know, pretty dynamic in and of itself. But I don't know. I do kind of hope, I'm kind of, I have my fingers crossed that Jimmy Kimmel as dubious a comedic presence as he may be at times um, will sort of step up to the plate and not just play softball in terms of like 
getting his com like in terms of like what the material that he's gonna choose to handle in his monologue and throughout mm-hmm. the night. And I don't know, maybe even call out Mel Gibson for being an anti-Semite, but still being a nominee. I think if I can make a mandatory, this is like just not ever going to happen, but a mandatory conclusion to the Oscars would be for everyone who like wins, or at least the producers, to like state like a goal they have for the next year yeah. in terms of diversity or how like they're, or like commit to um creating something with a diverse cast. I think that's something that maybe like if the red carpet interviewers were feeling pretty ballsy pretty ballsy that night could ask could ask them on the red carpet as opposed to the maybe we should crash the red carpet i think we yeah you wanna <laughs> are you free that sunday <laughs> you buy my ticket I'll no do it. i don't know i don't know about that so in light of iranians being banned from the united states today i'm going to tell a story of an iranian woman i think everybody should know about This is the life of the boundary-pushing poet, filmmaker, and genius, Farouk Farouksad. Farouk was born in Tehran, the capital of Iran, in 1935. She was the third of seven children in a middle-class family, and their father was a colonel in the army of Reza Shah. It's key to understand the political scene of Iran at this moment in time. After leading a coup in 1921 against a British-backed government, Reza Shah became the first democratically elected monarch of Iran. Reza Shah was a proud Iranian and, in fact, was the one who made the rest of the world say Iran instead of Persia. We're not going to go into a deep discussion about the merits of his rule, but his contribution to the women's movement is undeniable. He was a huge proponent of modernization, and in 1936, a year after Farouk was born, he actually banned the wearing of veils. This would eventually be changed to an optional choice by his son, but he would still create new co-educational schools, he believed women should go to university, and increase the minimum age for marriage. He called it the Women's Awakening Project. It all sounds really wonderful, so I encourage you to read about his background, because he was certainly not 100% wonderful. But many people in the West don't know about this period in women's history in Iran mostly because in 1979, Reza Shah's family was overthrown and Ayatollah Khomeini created the Republic of Iran. He reinstated forced wearing of veils and segregated education. Women were prevented from becoming judges. The minimum age of marriage became nine years old. Women were actually Khomeini's biggest supporters as they liked how he wanted to return to a more traditional time. I think now people realize Reza Shah's rulings had been a bit too soon but they didn't realize Khomeini wanted to set women back so much. Sounds like America could have learned a lot from Iran this election season. But in 1935, when Farouk was born, change was in the air for women. Her father, as a supporter of Reza Shah, encouraged the children to go to non-segregational schools and wanted his children to be thoroughly modern women. However, the Women's Awakening Project had happened so soon, and there was still a lot of uncertainty about where women could actually go professionally. Farouk felt stifled by her household, where she was considered a troublemaker because she was, by all accounts, maybe a bit too modern in her sensibilities, and she was determined to cut her own path. In 10th grade, when she was 16, she married Parviz Shapur. Shapur was a cousin of hers who was 10 years older and had some literary ambitions. No doubt this was part of Farouk's initial attraction. She had a child with him, Kamyar, in the first year of their marriage, but 
it was not a happy marriage. In 1955, the same year Farouk divorced her husband, she released her first poetry collection, The Captive. While Farouk was not Iran's first female poet by any means, her work was shocking. The Captive, as you might guess by its name, tackled the confines of traditional Iranian households for women. It scandalously discussed having multiple affairs, though who knows if Farouk actually participated in these or was just thinking about it, and also contained poems meditating on divorce. In accordance with law at the time, Farouk relinquished all rights to her child to her husband. This was not an easy decision. She was devastated by the loss, which was doubled by the fact that Shapur would tell their son she was a terrible, wanton woman and would deny her visitation rights. But Farouk was brave. She decided to become a writer full-time and moved into her own flat in the city. The pressure was initially too much, and Farouk suffered a mental breakdown, having to be hospitalized. But she recovered and persevered, taking writing jobs here and there and publishing some of the most astonishing poems in Iran's history. The literary circles in Iran were not happy. As you can imagine, they were mostly comprised of men. They accused her of leading an immoral life based on her poetry. Ali Ahmad, another famous writer at the time, publicly declared that she was only using sex in her life and in her writing to become famous. Farouk was the subject of intense gossip, especially because she would have a number of short relationships. Tired of the oppressive social environment and suffering from depression, Farouk took a trip to Europe and did some work at a film studio. It was there that she met Abraham Golestan, a writer and cinematographer, who she fell in love with. He was married with children, which, as you can imagine, did little but fan the flames of gossip. But at the studio, she became an editor and was able to make her first foray into filmmaking. In 1962, she directed The House is Black, a documentary about a leper colony in Azerbaijan. It won universal acclaim, and if you've seen it, there's no doubt why. People back home had hesitated to take her seriously before, having focused on the sensational aspects of her poetry rather than the poetry itself, but were finally confronted with a straightforward, non-scandalous piece of work that spoke for itself. UNESCO made a 30-minute film about Farouk's life, and the famous filmmaker Bernardo Bertolucci came to Iran to meet her and interview her for a short film. On a side note, Farouk grew attached to a child she met at the colony, the child of two lepers, and she adopted him. His name was Hussein, and he grew up to be smart and well-educated, partly thanks to the royalties that Farouk's books brought in. In 1967, she was 32 and was finally hailed as one of Iran's most important artists. She was adapting a George Bernard Shaw play. She was working on several films. Her poetry was finally seen for what it was, highly impressive. In a letter she wrote to her brother, she said, my hair is turning gray and there are lines in my forehead and two deep furrows between my eyebrows. I am glad that I am no longer a dreamer now that I am nearly 32, even though being 32 years old means having used up and left behind 32 years of one's allocation of life. But instead, I have found myself. She was poised for success. But on February 14th, that same year, after having a conversation with her mother that would be described as the nicest they ever had, 
Farouk swerved in traffic to avoid hitting a school bus and was killed instantly. The world was shocked by Farouk's death. There's no doubt about the influence she left behind. As you can imagine, once Khomeini came into power, her poems were banned by the government. Her publisher was told to stop printing her works. He refused, was put in jail, and had his factory burned down. But people still read her works, purchasing them on the black market. In the 80s, students protested the government by chanting the words of her poetry. And the controversy still continues today. In 2010, an anthology published of famous Iranian poets did not include Farouk, even though she is considered the most famous female poet from the country. An official issued a statement that we have a cultural diplomacy and a governmental one. Because of that, the name of Farouk Farouksad, even though it is known amongst those who read poetry, was not included in this book. There's no doubt that Farouk is going to inspire women all around the world for generations to come and is, I think, a really timely example for how your personal art can be deeply political and also inspire change. I think this would be an amazing film, obviously. She's a fascinating subject, but I do think it brings up the unique sort of ways in which a film's about writing can you know, veer off track or be really difficult to actually create just because the writing process is so internal. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of films about writers sort of struggle in that way to make the experience of creating um, seem really compelling on screen. But I think, you know, I think the story should absolutely be told. But I was wondering if you had any particular ways in which you were sort of envisioning her story to take shape well i would definitely want this film to sort of be her entire life because first of all it was a very short life right but i think it is really important to see um how her household really influenced her Mm -hmm. and the political climate at the time because and especially because her father was part of the army you know Mm -hmm. unfortunately there aren't a lot of english language sources about her life i think it's a biography but i couldn't find it online Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot of details about her life that are out there I just could not find on the internet I think it's really amazing how she chose to get married kind of to escape the confines of her household I know a few women do that but um, it's just so risky especially because she knew that if she did have this child and her poetry does talk about this and she obviously wrote it before she actually got divorced but um, even though it was published after but if you got divorced and you had a child, you knew that you were giving up all rights to your child. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it was for women. So it's quite shocking that she actually went through with it because clearly she really cared about her child. She ended up adopting another child. So it's like such a crazy sacrifice. I think think what makes this story so interesting is that, I mean, yes, it is the story of like a woman, like a trailblazing Iranian woman who just sort of, created her own path but she really I mean the choices she made in her life were really unexpected in that vein like the choice to get married so it's sort of like I mean it is you know obviously a woman like a story about a woman who defied um her society but it's also I guess a woman who in terms of like seeing this woman's life on film I think it would sort of just go against what audiences were probably anticipating Mm -hmm. like a woman to do on screen in terms of like either sticking to, like, being, like, firmly, like, feminist or, you know, sort of just, you know, kind of taking her life down the paths that she chose. Yeah. Um, 
I would really love for her familial relationship to be explored a lot. I know I already mentioned her childhood, but I think it's so tragic that the day of her death, you know, she finally had the nicest conversation she ever had with her yeah. mother. That's just so sad to me. Who, you know? who reported that, that it was like the nicest? Was the that like mom. her mom's account? Yeah. yeah. And so that's just so sad. They finally made a breakthrough and you can just imagine how happy she probably felt. Yeah. And I mean... Not to sound morbid, but on screen, obviously, that would work really oh, well. It would be incredibly, incredibly moving. Yeah. Be, yeah. And um, because, you know, you would see that progression. And I'm also really interested to see the mother's relationship with her in particular, because obviously her mother came from a more conservative time period. Mm-hmm. And she was born into this hyper modern time period, which, you know, wasn't successful because it was too much too soon, which right. I already mentioned, um, which is also really interesting. Um, but yeah I, I'd be really interested in the contrast between those two women's lives yeah and how and especially how for perceived other women is something I'm really curious about is that the relationship that you think should be most central to a movie like that just because I think like mother-daughter relationships particularly like when it comes to female artists and their mothers like I feel like I rarely see that in movies it's usually like a volatile husband or spouse yeah, I mean, the thing is, there was a big chunk of uh, Farouk's life where her mother was absent. Mm-hmm. She did keep in contact with her siblings, so maybe we could we could just see her relationship with different women that she comes across. Mm-hmm. Femininity and what that means to different people is what I think should be the central theme of the mm-hmm. film. So who do you, do you have like anyone in mind for, I guess, helming this film? Actually, there was one director who came up when I was doing my research, which is Tamane Milani. She's an Iranian director, and her work focuses on, you know, predominantly focuses on resilient women. And um, she's very popular with young people and also famous. And that, that was just something that came up over and over when I was researching like, her. Popular she's popular with the, with the kids. The kids love yeah. her. Um, I think probably because she's incendiary, you know, so she's I'm like sure. cool to like. She was actually jailed in 2001 because one of her films had these uh, an- so-called anti-revolutionary sentiments. But she was eventually released because people protested like Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese. The yeah. Martin Scorsese also protested Roman Polanski. So. I know, but this is, <laughs> this is Scorsese using his artistic credibility for, his, for, his, for his auteurist celebrity for, for a, good. a cause that's actually good. I know. Um, a lot so. of people sign that letter, the Roman Polanski letter, though. I know. I and think that's I, one of I like the, the constant strains of all, our discussion of our I, friendship. That I know. discussion of like Roman Polanski. Yeah, you know? to totally take this. Like discussion, like to off totally bear this off course. Yeah. yeah, that petition of people who support Rumblinski is my personal blacklist. It is. <laughs> um, on a final note about that, um, them chanting her, uh, the students chanting her poetry in the streets as a protest, um, really reminded me of an incident that happened just recently where um, Muslim ban, obviously. Right, and you were at the protest. I was there. I was at JFK. Um, and I did not see this because I think this was actually the day after. But apparently there was a group of people chanting lyrics from a song by a rap trio that Rizamet is part of, um, the Sweatshop Boys, which mm-hmm. is also comprised of Heems, who was formerly in Das Racist um, and uh, this producer called Rodinho. And they have a song called T5, which is, first of all, great, but... Um, 
what the protesters were chanting were these lyrics, which is the start of the song, which is inshallah, mashallah, hopefully no martial law, which is genius. <laughs> and um, I just thought it was really cool to see brown people making art that really resonates and is also productive. And I think even though it's personal, it's political and productive. And I think that's what a lot of um, Farouk's poetry is also doing to this yeah, day. Yeah, it serves a similar purpose. So in lieu of an Oscar scene, I'm going to read an excerpt of a poem by Farouk. It's from her final posthumously published collection, Let Us Believe in the Beginning of the Cold Season. This poem has strange foreshadowings of her own death. Um, There's the afterlife, winter, and four o'clock prominent in the poem, which was the actual time of Farouk's death. I am reading a translation by David Martin from a magazine called Hawaii Review. It's uh, edition number 13 and from 1982, and it's totally random, but I came across it and I really like this translation. Let's bring faith to the onset of the cold season. And this is me, a lone and lonely woman, at the threshold of a cold season, at the beginning of understanding Earth's stained being, and of understanding pure and simple despair, and of understanding the sky's overcast and cloudy melancholy, and these cement hands as impotence. Time passed. Time passed, and the clock struck four. Struck four, struck four, struck four. Today's date is December 21st, the first day of winter. I know the secret of the seasons, and I comprehend the speech of moments. The Savior has gone to sleep in the grave, and the earth, the accepting receiving earth, is a sign of his peace. Time passed, and the clock struck four. Wind blows cold down the alley. Wind blows cold down the alley, and I am thinking about the love-mating, trellis-making of flowers, about buds with anemic stalks, and about this consumptive wasted age, and a man passing between damp trees, a man whose blue cords of his veins have crawled up both sides of his throat like dead snakes, and the disturbed temples of his head. That bloody, scorning syllable is repeated. Peace. Peace. And I am thinking about the love-mating, trellis-making of flowers at the threshold of a cold season. Asian Oscar Bait is hosted by Melissa Powers and Matthew Eng, produced by Caroline Pinto with music by Rina Minagishi and marketing by Alina Heim. Come say hi at Asian Oscar Bait on Twitter or at www.asianoscarbait.com where we list our sources. And before we end our episode, we'd like to shout out the new NBC series, Powerless. It's about a bunch of inventors living in a superhero world with absolutely no powers but their own ingenuity. And it stars a remarkably diverse cast, including Asians, Vanessa Hudgens, and Danny Pudi from Community. And make sure you rate and review us on iTunes. It's really important that you do this so we can get bumped up the charts.